hope that you have enjoyed the patriarch study. I certainly have. What a wonderful part of the scriptures. This portion of Genesis 12 through 50. But you know, as I think over our lessons, really even going back to the beginning of Genesis, there's one word that just keeps popping up in my mind again and again. And it's the word providence. Speaking of providence, a young man's parents once prayed for his safety while he rode his motorcycle from one side of the United States to the other. Mechanical trouble slowed his progress more than once. But somehow, one way or another, day after day, he was able to patch up the parts and keep on going. On the very last day, just as he turned into the neighborhood, and onto the street of his destination, the troublesome part completely disengaged and fell right off his motorcycle into the street. When he later told his parents the story, they immediately realized that the timely disengagement was no coincidence. This was providence. God had heard and answered their prayers. Maybe you can recall someone speaking of a specific situation recently as providential, or maybe you've used that term yourself. How would you define providence? What is it? Well, really, it's the idea that there's a benevolent and purposeful ordering of the events of history, all the events of history. Nothing happens by chance. Though not always perceptible to human understanding, there is a divine plan to the universe, a reason for everything. Now, to believe in providence doesn't mean denying that human beings are able to initiate and affect evil and bear full responsibility for it. Providence is simply based on the belief that God is powerful enough to control, preserve, and govern all things in spite of man's choices. God has a personal agenda. He's involved in ensuring his agenda, and his agenda is good because he is good. Now, by now, you might have figured out that our beginnings and patriarchs studies constitute, together, they constitute a full one-fourth of all of the God of the Word material, and yet they cover only one of the Bible's 66 books. Why is that? Well, since one of our goals is to see how the Bible tells a unified story, it's important for us to have a good understanding of the beginning, of Genesis. Genesis introduces the foundational elements of the story of the Bible and also a few of the Bible's foundational doctrines or teachings. I'd suggest that without a good grasp of Genesis, the rest of the Bible just can't be properly understood. Now as a heads up, our next study, Exodus, covers the remainder of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Those other four books are Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
This is among the least read and understood portions of the Bible. But we'll discover the great importance in the story. It's a great importance in the, in the story and the value of its principles for us today. You won't want to miss the Exodus study. But now, let's wrap up patriarchs with a review of Genesis and a little more information about the world of the patriarchs. As we do, we'll most definitely see the theme of providence emerge. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us who God is, who we are, what our relationship is to him and to one another, and how the world came to be in desperate need as we see it today. In literary terms, we could say the main characters and the central conflict of the story are presented. The first words in Genesis introduce God as the creator of all and as an active, powerful, personal being with intelligence and will, a being who transcends his creation. The implication is that everything falls into one of two classifications, God and all that's not God, created things. God is also portrayed as a moral being. He called his creation good. The creation account indicates that God created us in his image, and he created us as he intended us to be. We were made entirely differently than the animals. Like God, we are spiritual beings with personality, morality, and inherent dignity. We're the apex of God's creation and the apple of his eye. The introduction of God's personal name, Yahweh, or Lord, emphasizes the personal nature of his relationship with mankind. Now, after creation, the second main event in Genesis, the fall, explains how the world came into its present needy condition. Genesis 3 introduces Satan, God's enemy. He came to the woman in the form of a serpent and tempted her to eat the one fruit God had forbidden. Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation, rebelled against God, and sin entered the world. As a result, God cursed the serpent. However, within that curse was a great promise for humankind. God said the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Jewish and Christian commentators alike have understood this to be the first promise of the Deliverer, the Messiah. By defeating Satan, he would one day overturn the curse. In the meantime, for Adam, Eve, and their offspring, for us, sin brings death physical death, and spiritual separation from God. Even the ground is cursed. Life is frustrating. The third main event of Genesis is one of judgment. Over time, the insidious influence of sin was so impactful that only one man of faith and his family remained on earth. All the remainder was of the earth was corrupt. Because the condition was so widespread, God determined to wipe out the, out the population with a flood and start again with the righteous man, Noah. The account of the flood emphasizes God's righteous wrath over sin and the necessity of judgment. 
However, in the ark that delivered Noah, we see a picture of a greater principle. Faith in God and God's promised deliverer was the true vehicle by which Noah's family was saved. And faith in God and his promised deliverer is the only vehicle by which we can escape final judgment. The fourth main event in these early chapters is also a type of judgment. You see, Noah's sons began repopulating the earth, and over time, nations developed. God had instructed Noah's sons to multiply and spread over the earth. This was essential because where people gathered, the corrupting effects of sin would multiply. But in rebellion against God, some of the descendants of Ham, Noah's son Ham, established cities and kingdoms, permitting human culture and rebellion against God to grow. One particular manifestation of this rebellion was the common goal of building a ziggurat, a temple tower. We know it as the Tower of Babel. God ensured the population was scattered and the building project abandoned. He did this by confusing the language of the builders. It was the end of a common language for humankind. Now, through the primeval history of Genesis, these first 11 chapters, we become increasingly aware that left to ourselves, human beings are hopelessly sinful and in desperate need of God's promised deliverance. Among the critical themes of these chapters are humankind's creation in God's image, sin's grip on and corruption of humanity, God's promise of a redeemer, and his judgment of the wicked and salvation of the faithful. The theme of providence isn't spelled out as directly in these chapters as in some others, but it's more of an ever-present undercurrent. The all-powerful and good creator is working out his divine plan. Despite the entrance of sin into the world and its hold on mankind, God continually overruled to ensure his plan to redeem and restore was never snuffed out. Sin and death won't have the final word. And that's our first principle. Sin and death will not have the final word. In the midst of an elementary school science lesson, a second grader once commented, this caterpillar thinks it's dying, but it's really being born. You see, though sin and death may seem to prevail, God, the author and giver of life, is always protecting his greater purposes. So my dear friend, is there a situation so desperate that it seems hopeless? Do you foresee no possibility of a good outcome? Does the power of sin only seem to grow while the influence of righteousness wanes? Is sin's grip on someone you love only tightening with the passage of time? Like Noah on the ark, we may only see death around us. But God did not, and he 
will not allow it to have the final word. Jesus, the Messiah, has finished his work. He is now at God's right hand. And we're therefore assured that sin and death won't have the final word. While the opening chapters of Genesis recount four events, the remaining chapters recount the lives of four men, these patriarchs of Israel that we've been studying. Genesis 11 ends by introducing Abram to us as a descendant of Shem, a son of Noah. Genesis 12 through 50 then go on to tell us how God intended to work through Abraham's family to introduce his solution to the problem of sin. These chapters give us greater insight into God's dealing dealings with faithful, although very imperfect, individuals. They also give us the history of the formation of the nation of Israel. And in this part of the biblical narrative, the theme of providence comes much closer to the surface. Abraham was called by God to leave his homeland, his people, and his father's household to go to a land that was unknown to him, the land of Canaan. God covenanted to make Abraham into a great nation, to bless him, and to make him a blessing to all nations. He also promised to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. These covenant promises were critical in the lives of all four patriarchs. They clung to them by faith, even though they saw little fulfillment of them during their lifetimes. Abraham was far from perfect, yet he believed God, and God credited his faith as righteousness. Abraham is a model of saving faith. That is, he trusted in God's promises, and he acted accordingly. In his case, that involved leaving his homeland and later preparing to sacrifice Isaac, his promised son, at God's direction. From Abraham, we learn about faith. From Isaac, we learn about sonship. Isaac shared so many of his father's qualities and life experiences. But as it turned out, Isaac fathered twin sons, Jacob and Esau. He and his wife, Rebecca, each had a favorite son, which caused trouble in the household. Eventually, God's word to Rebekah was fulfilled, and the older son, Esau, served the younger Jacob. Jacob then inherited the patriarchal promises. Unlike Abraham or Isaac, Jacob was a troublemaker. His name means he deceives, and he was indeed a deceiver. Jacob tricked Esau into selling him his birthright, then deceived his father into blessing him rather than blessing Esau. En route to his mother's family in Padan Aram, God appeared to Jacob in a dream. God reiterated his covenant promises to Jacob, and Jacob responded by receiving the Lord as his own God. Twenty years after leaving Canaan, Jacob returned with four wives, 11 sons, many servants, and his own flocks and herds in tow. The night before he crossed the Jabbok River and entered Canaan, the angel of the Lord wrestled with him. 
God changed Jacob's name to Israel. The wrestling match and the midlife name change indicate a change in Jacob's character. Jacob had been resisting God and resorting to his own schemes and deceit. But thereafter, he learned to yield to God and depend on him. From Jacob, we learn about sanctification. Some of Jacob's sons inherited his troublemaking nature. His oldest son, Reuben, slept with, with one of his father's wives. His next two sons, Simeon and Levi, murdered an entire city of men after their sister was raped. His fourth-born son, Judah, married a Canaanite woman and then failed to take responsibility and keep his commitment to his own daughter-in-law. Furthermore, Jacob's ten oldest sons hated their younger brother, Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt and deceived their father into believing he'd been killed by a wild animal. From the time Joseph arrived in Egypt at age 17 until he was 30 years old, Joseph suffered deeply. Despite his suffering, God prospered him. Twice he rose to a position of management, and ultimately he was elevated to Lord of Egypt. Joseph is a type of Christ. After he suffered, God exalted him. And in this, his life portrays for us the nature of glorification. Because of the famine, Jacob's family of 70 joined Joseph in Egypt, where they grew and prospered. Jacob and Joseph both died in Egypt, but both were buried in Canaan in accordance with their final requests and an indication of their faith that God would still keep his promise to give Canaan to their descendants. So we see that God worked through four imperfect men to establish a, na a nation through which he would bless the world. The patriarchs lived and died, believing and anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises, especially the promise of a deliverer, a Messiah. The covenant promises of God are thus one of the important themes of Genesis 12 through 50, along with the historical development of the nation of Israel. But that third theme is the one I've already mentioned, the theme of providence. We see God working in the lives of the patriarchs at every turn to ensure the fulfillment of his promises, countermandating the threats imposed by their many failures. Joseph summarized God's providential overruling in his words to his brothers. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. It's an important biblical principle. What Satan intends for evil, God providentially overrules for good. So that's our second principle today. What Satan intends for evil, God providentially overrules for good. Now just think with me for a moment about the importance of the biblical teaching of providence. Sometimes we hear people refer to luck, history, progress, 
or human know-how as the movers and shapers of life. But all of these words are really just attempts to depersonalize God. As the New Bible Dictionary explains, chance denies that power is rational. Deism denies that God's involved. Dualism suggests there are multiple divine forces and therefore competing agendas. Pantheism, the belief that nature is God, denies his intelligence or that he can even have an agenda. Indeterminism says there's no control in life at all. Determinism said God's denied man freedom and responsibility. Finally, fate denies that God is personal and good. Providence is important because it negates belief in any of these things. But if the biblical theme of providence is not any of these, then how exactly does the Bible explain God's providence? Well, I've referred to Romans 8.28 on more than one occasion in our patriarch study. I'd say it's a verse that puts Joseph's words into a doctrinal declaration. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, please notice, this isn't a promise for everyone. It's a promise for those who love God and have been called, that is, called into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus. And secondly, it isn't a promise that everything will always work out the way we want it to, and we think is best, it's a promise that God is providentially ordering history, even your personal history, in a way he knows is ultimately best. In fact, the very next verse in Romans tells us what is ultimately best for you and me, conformity to Jesus's likeness. We have an enemy that would like nothing more than to destroy us. He sought to destroy Eve. But God is supernaturally and providentially ensuring that his children become all he created us to be. He's always working toward that good end. Will you view your circumstances with eyes of faith as the patriarchs did? And trust that God's plan is good, that he is providentially working all things for your good. Let's conclude now with some general information about the world of the patriarchs. You'll find a map by that name, the world of Israel's patriarchs, included with this lesson on the God of the Word website. Now, I believe some of you will just love this geographical and historical information. Others, maybe not so much. But but hang with me, and I really think you'll have a greater appreciation for the book of Genesis and for God's providence in world history. Mesopotamia is a combination of two Greek words that mean 
between Meso and River, Potamia. It was one of three major powers in the region of the world in which the patriarchs lived. I'm going to be talking about these three major powers. In modern use, Mesopotamia refers to the region between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, two of the four rivers named in Genesis 2 as having their sources in the river that flowed from the Garden of Eden, and both of which empty into the Persian Gulf. The southerly portion of Greater Mesopotamia is where the Akkadian and Sumerian empires developed. Abraham began his travels in Ur, you may remember, a major center of civilization in southern Mesopotamia. Then in Genesis 24.10, we find a reference to the central and northern part of Mesopotamia as the region of Aram Naharaim, which means the Aram of the two rivers. This same region is later called Padan Aram in the biblical text, and it included the biblical city of Haran, where Abraham and his father stopped en route to Canaan and where his father died. Haran may also have been the city in Padan Aram where Nahor, Laban, and Rebekah resided. This region later became the center of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Egypt was also an important world power. Obviously, the need for water played an important factor in the development of early civilizations. The Nile River is the heart of Egypt. In Genesis 12, Abraham traveled into Egypt. And the book of Genesis ends with Israel's family living in Goshen, a region in the northeastern delta of the Nile. The Israelites lived there for 430 years. But then there's a third great ancient empire, and that was in Asia Minor, or modern Turkey. It was the land of the Hittites. Now, the Hittite Empire wasn't established until about 1600 BC and therefore did not play an important role in patriarchal history. Abraham, though, purchased the land where he buried Sarah from a Hittite, according to Genesis 23. However, since that Hittite man lived much earlier, it's not really known whether he was from the same people group that later formed the great Hittite Empire. To travel directly from Mesopotamia to Egypt would require traversing the Arabian Desert, a nearly impossible task. Therefore, the trade route between these two very important powers has always run through the fertile valley that's near the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. This is the region of Syria-Palestine. It's always been an important land bridge between Asia, Europe, and Africa. In the days of the patriarchs, Canaanite people's groups inhabited it. Abraham came from Haran in northern Mesopotamia into Canaan. His first stop in Canaan was Shechem, the city whose male citizens Jacob's sons later killed. From there, he traveled to Bethel and Ai, or sometimes called Ai. Shechem, Ai, and Bethel were in the heartland of Canaan, and all of these cities were important in Israel's later history. 
But Abraham also traveled in and out of the Negev. This is the dry desert area south of Judah. Beersheba in the Negev was a place where Abraham and Isaac found a water source. Hebron lies between Bethel, Ai, and Beersheba. It's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And you'll see Mamre on the map. Mamre was the name of an individual, and the oaks, or great trees, of Mamre, referenced in Genesis 14, were a region near Hebron. The early Bronze Age is the period between 3300 and 2000 BC, and this was the time in which the first two great empires developed, the Old Kingdom of Egypt, and also the time in which most of the pyramids were constructed, and the Sumero-Akkadian empires in Mesopotamia. The earliest forms of writing also developed in the early Bronze Age. In Egypt, hieroglyphics was used. In Mesopotamia, the Sumerians used cuneiform. Now, the Canaanites in Palestine flourished during this period. Large, walled cities were developed. However, however, these collapsed near the end of the early Bronze Age, probably about the time of Abraham's birth. The stable Old Kingdom of Egypt also collapsed near the end of the Early Bronze Age, and Egypt entered a 200-year period in which the country was politically divided. Meanwhile, in southern Mesopotamia, the Sumerian culture centered in Ur experienced a brief renaissance around the turn of the second millennium, the time of Abraham. Conversely, in Syria-Palestine, after the disappearance of the urban centers, the people of the Middle Bronze Age lived in tents and huts. In other words, Abraham went from a bustling, highly developed city in Mesopotamia into Canaan, where the people were spread out in tents and huts. However, the Amorites also migrated into this region of Syria-Palestine, and they began redeveloping some urban centers. So the towns and cities of Canaan that we read about in Abraham's travels were likely flourishing as a part of this development. In Egypt, the political division ended and the country flourished during what's known as its Middle Kingdom. But near the end of the Middle Kingdom, a West Semitic group called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, took control of northern Egypt and ruled there for 150 years, from 1700 to 1540. It was the first time Egypt had been dominated by foreigners. Now, these may have been the people who subjugated the Israelites and treated them harshly after Joseph's death. For as Exodus 1 tells us, a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. I'm hoping this very basic information gives you a greater understanding about the world of the patriarchs. But as I said, I also hope it helps you put the pieces together and see God's sovereignty over the nations. Providence is a function of God's sovereignty, and God is sovereign over the nations of the world.
He's sovereign over the nations of the world. What a great reminder that you and I are part of a bigger picture and that God is able to work all things together and ensure his purposes prevail. The book of Genesis and our patriarch study conclude with Israel in Egypt. We're once again reminded of Joseph's final words in Genesis 50:24. God will surely come to your aid. And my friend, today our world is threatened by famine, by pestilence, terrorism, climatic events, and moral decline. I don't even have to tell you that. You know. We may be discouraged by what we see happening in the governments and in the nations of the world. But since the time of Christ, believers have had the assurance that God has come to our aid and that Jesus will return to set everything right. While God permits evil men to have their way for a season, he will have the final word. He has an agenda that simply cannot be thwarted, and his plan is exceedingly good. He's not only working to ensure his purposes prevail among nations, he's also providentially overseeing your life and mine.